I sort of wait until the pig comes in <laughs> and, you know, let her talk to me in a way. Like looking at a menu and being like, okay, my four meat proteins are from not just the same type of animal, but the actual one animal. That was, yeah, so, that, you know, there's dishes, but it had changed depending on the pig, you know. This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Many in hospitality dream of the day they can open their own restaurant to build it from the ground up and execute their vision of what it means to dine and imbibe on their terms. But what are the challenges of nailing this vision, this dream? For Nigel Ward, the last few years have been a journey of just that. And he's just putting the finishing touches on a venue that is every bit of him and his experiences. Nigel, how are you? Oh, a bit nervous, actually, mate. Um, <laughs> yeah, we've, we've chatted at length twice now, and uh, it's always in an empty restaurant. So I'm, I'm a bit worried I haven't got too many more stories left in the tank, but uh, we'll see how we go. Well, I, you've always got a story, so I'm sure you're going to be fine. But um, it's been quite a journey. You've, you know, this is this is almost sort of your dream restaurant, and you've you know, the attention to detail you've been putting into it has been extraordinary. What's what's it been like? Um, well, it's, it's been a bit boring for the last few months because we've, <laughs> we've had a fully fitted dining room but just sort of waiting on council approvals. But, um, yeah, I mean, the process of building, uh, I, I, uh, we talked about last time um, on the weeds, was, you know, probably I underestimated the amount of work involved. But, um yeah, I'm actually here at the moment in the dining room upstairs and um, I've just set it up for um, our first function, which is uh, in the next couple of weeks. And I've got a big long table of, of 24 chairs and plates and glasses and yeah, it's all looking pretty real, which has only really happened in the last sort of uh, two days. So it's very exciting. Um, but yeah, the whole process has been, um, look, it's been challenging, but uh, it's I'm just really looking forward to seeing a room full of happy people. Well, give us a sense of what the what the place looks like, what you've created. So, okay, so we've sort of modelled it on a like a Roman osteria. Um, it's a heritage building. It's from 1890. It used to be an old hardware shop. Um, and we've basically retained all of the original features, so the old fireplaces, pressed metal ceilings, um, yeah, and, and, and sort of built this space around, I guess, the beauty of the building. Um, and it's, yeah, it just, it feels, it, even just being here now, it doesn't feel like a new restaurant, if that makes sense. It feels like this is what it should have looked like, you know, and, and, and yeah, it feels very comfortable and lovely. I'm, I'm, I'm super stoked with how everything's come up. Um, there's not a single, single little bit of detail that, uh, that I'm not, you know, really pleased with and proud of. There's, there's a lot of people in the industry that sort of dream of creating their own venue, not just owning their own venue, but building it from scratch is, is, you know, quite different and an incredible opportunity. Well, what sort of advice or learnings have you had from, from this experience? Um, I guess, yeah, number one is um, engage people that know what they're doing. You know, like we got Tim Leveson to do the interior and it's um, it's stunning. Um, and I thought his vision was kind of ambitious in the beginning, but um, definitely get, get the right trades and probably make sure it was a restaurant beforehand. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that's really the big lesson. 
Um, don't ever buy or rent a space that you want to turn into a restaurant that doesn't have pre-existing use rights because um, the rules now are just, uh, you know, they're geared towards new buildings and, you know, and, and trying to take a, you know, 19th century shop front um, and turn it into a restaurant with, you know, wheelchair compliance and, you know, fire rating and all this kind of stuff is uh, at, at whilst trying to retain, I guess, the character of the building has been really hard. So, yeah, just make sure you find the right people that give you the right advice. Um, and I'm not saying that I haven't been given the right advice. I probably just was a little bit stubborn because I, I said I fell in love with the place and I was like, no, nah, that's what we're doing. We're just going to do it. And, uh, yeah, finally we're sort of at the um, – at the final hurdle so it's very exciting the foundation and at the very heart of your cookery is italian cuisine tell us about how you fell in love with italian cookery and and why it's a part of you this is embarrassing um (laughs) i i used to go to these cafe this cafe um in chatswood in sydney like instead of going to school i used to dodge school and go to this cafe and smoke cigarettes and drink coffees with all the old boys and um i just felt they were all old italians and greeks and i was sort of a young kid with them and i felt so cool and i I watched the godfather and there's this there's this scene where clemenza uh teaches michael how to make a sauce for like a lot of guys and um that's the first thing I ever cooked. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I made that sauce. I asked mum to get me all the ingredients and I made that sauce without a recipe when I was like 14. And, um, yeah, it just kind of started from there. What's been some of the real sort of learnings that you've, you've had over the years that have influenced and the direction that you've taken with your sort of interpretation of Italian? Okay. Um, attention to detail. Um, you know, just repeat, repeat, repeat until you get it right. I remember my first job was at Sean's um, and Sean used to call me Chicken Boy as a joke because <laughs> uh, he used to get, he, you know, his roast chook was so famous but he used to get like 50 chooks in on a on a Wednesday and I'd finish it uh, at, at TAFE and, and burn over by like 1 p.m. And my, my job was to... Uh, uh, sort of put butter under the breast and trust the chickens. And uh, I used to time myself every week. And, you know, I think I started at like, um, you know, three and a half hours. And then by the end of the year, I was at like 45 minutes. Um, yeah. So, you know, just you just keep doing something repetitively until you get, you know, until you get it right. I mean, I remember looking in the ovens at nighttime, like taking all the twills out one by one when they were perfect or the rhubarb making sure it didn't explode um so yeah that's that's pretty important um i guess <laughs> don't be a cowboy is, is a pretty big one i've tried it a lot in the past um i remember being in the shit loot shows when i was a commie and um I, I went in the back corner of pastry and I pulsed the shallots for the salad dressing in the RoboCoop, just <laughs> with no one looking. And uh, yeah, Logan, Logan took a took a salad leaf um, uh, during service, and he just knew straight away. Um, and so he uh, he ordered a twenty kilo bag of shallots the next day, and I had to um, peel and chop them all by hand. So I decided not to do that anymore. <laughs> um, and the other thing that I'm really crazy for and everyone thinks I'm a bit nuts is that I I literally empty and clean the cool room and service fridges every day and that's every single container it you know it needs to be downsized because I just it's just a really interesting way to like oh I've got three portions of this you know maybe we can turn that into a special or you're like I hate food waste 
um, and Sean's and, and, and Lucho's and, and even Trullo in London were so good for that in that we, if you've got a menu that changes every day, you can be flexible. You can put it on as a special. Say you've got like five portions or something. You're like, oh, we're going to be quiet for lunch tomorrow. Why don't we pop that on? And then that way, you know, nothing's going in the bin. We're using every single bit of the product. You mentioned Trillo and obviously Sean's and Lucio's. Is there any sort of um, learnings that you had in regards to pork and, and pork dishes during your times in those restaurants? Oh, yeah, God. Um, so Grant, from um, he's now at Feather and Bone, but when I was at Sean's, he, he was running front of house there. Um, and he, we used to call him Waggies because, uh, you know, he was always experimenting with Waggy Brazola and all that kind of stuff. But um, he, he used to have relationships with farmers back then and bring in like whole pigs and, you know, Sean would, you know, braise the, you know, braise the shoulder and then, you know, uh, do or do a little chop as well with it and just kind of use different cuts of the pig um and just the sauce oh man it was so good he it was just like every other like french restaurant all that kind of stuff that i'd sort of seen would always like mount the sauce with butter where short what sean would do is if you had a split sauce with like pork fat and pan juices he'd just throw a bit of vinegar in it and then reboil it and it'd just emulsify and it was it was light and gorgeous and like that's pretty much what i still eat now during service um (laughs) as my little sort of you know service dinner you spent a lot of time travelling uh, through Italy. Take us on the journey that you've you've gone there and that sort of impact that it had on you. Yeah, there's been a few. Um, so I think the first one was 2005, going around in a camper van um, with with my you know stinky 21 year old mates and going to markets and just that's sort of where it. That's when I decided to become a chef. It was just going to the going to the markets and seeing the food culture. It's it's like a religion, you know. It's 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 really hard not to sort of become you know intoxicated by it. Um, and then I came back, and you know that's when sort of Sean's and Lucho started. And then two thousand and nine, I took a bit of a break and did a little food odyssey um, around around Europe, and in particular around Italy. Um, and then. Uh, yeah, when I got back to Sydney, I remember that I was cooking. I went back to Lucio's. After, I'd been there for two and a half years and I came back and did another sort of year there. And, and, and Lucio's son, Matteo, came to me. He's like, Dad's, Dad wants to put your staff meal in the cookbook because he, he, he's like, he just said, you, you, you get it now. Like before it was, you know, let's put chorizo with the prawns in the pasta and complicated. And you, you just understand now that you, you just got to make the prawns sing and keep it really, really simple. Um um, but yes, yeah, I mean, and I guess the big one was sort of that time in London at Trullo because we were getting all this stuff flown in from Italy and Tim and Jordan worked at the River Cafe. So we were pretty much doing their food, but, um, with a little bit more, uh, freedom of expression. And then I did this, yeah, did this sort of food odyssey where I, we started in, uh, Malfi Coast and we lived on like a lemon grove and, you know, I remember filleting anchovies in seawater and having them, you know, toss through fresh spaghetti for dinner and then we shepherded goats in Tuscany and I guess that uh, this was with Blake, my best mate, and who was the other sort of chef at Trullo. And then um, we finished it at, at Valley Unite where we um, knocked over four pigs and um, made salami, made cottachino, made all these uh, amazing products from scratch. Um, um, yeah, I mean, they grew the they grew the the fodder for the animals. It was uh, it was just amazing, and that's I guess being at Trullo, because uh, Tim had also worked at St John. That's probably where a lot of those um, uh, you know that sort of nose to tail ethos kind of, kind of came around. And then you go you go to Italy, and then you just see like the pig 
is such a noble animal, but it's really, you know, it's it's valued by the impoverished because it's just, it's really easy to grow in a small space and uh, you can use every bit, you know, every bit but the oink. And, um, and it, you know, it's, it's, it's such a sustainable um, uh, product to use because you, you can literally. Um, there's just what are you going to do with it? You know, if there's enough, if there's not enough fat on the on the belly, then we're not going to make tan shed, and maybe we're going to slow braise that. Or yeah, it was just look, looking at the way they approach it in terms of different sizes, and yeah. Take us back to that experience of the four pigs, and um, do you have any stories of what that was like making all of the the small goods afterwards? And oh yeah, it was two it was two cows and four pigs in one day, first day on a really big hangover. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, the pigs were like about three to four hundred kilos each, so big girls. Um, yeah, and so we we obviously the it was pretty full on. Um, but, uh, then looking at how they used, like, I remember that there was a, what was his name? Emilio, one of the old boy, you know, no one else could, could slit the throat except for Emilio. And then, you know, he'd, he'd catch all the blood and that'd go into, um, a blood sausage. And, um, I remember breakfast, uh, Emilio got a little camp stove out and they'd sort of taken all the, the meat off the ribs and there was just kind of like the the spare ribs and he wrapped them up in foil with a bit of garlic and oregano and uh stuck it over a gas flame on this little camp stove for like 20 minutes and then we all had bread that was baked that morning with you know glasses of you know light spritzy wine you know like nine o'clock it was uh <laughs> breakfast of champions as they say tell us a bit a bit about you know when you first started sort of cooking italian food for your own um Sagra was such an important sort of venue in Sydney. How did that come about? Look, a lot of it's driven by um, by what I learned at Trullo and in Italy in terms of um, well, at Trullo we would we would ring uh, this 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 fish guy in Mersey Island at um, eight in the morning, and he'd be on the boat telling us what was actually coming in right now. He's like, I've got some Dorset crabs or I've got, you know, I've got blue mackerel, um, I've got some place or some lemon sole. What do you want? And it wouldn't turn up until like 6.30 in the evening. And, and um, you know, people, have, we'd have checks on and, 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 but the fish wasn't there. So, like, you know, then it was this mad scramble, half, you know, half an hour into service to get the fish ready to then send it out. And Saga was kind of the same. I used to ring Eli at Martin's every morning and do the same thing. And even with even with pork and with with veggies, it'd be the same deal. You know, like I'd ring Matt from Melanda Park every um, every Monday and sort of place an order for a Wednesday delivery. And I'd say, you know, what what size are they? Um, so I could start thinking about how we're going to do it. Have you got you know, have you got any 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 sucklers that you're knocking over, or have you got a big girl so I can make some some pancetta or some guanciale? Um, or is it a medium-sized pig, which we can kind of, you know, um, use throughout the week for different things, be it sausage or whatever. But, uh, yeah, Saga is very much, I don't know. So, I mean, it was a punish to do that, obviously, and I'm, I'm about to do it all again. Um, but it just, it's it's exciting to do that. You're not coming into the same restaurant every day for three months cooking the same menu. It's like, well, what are we going to do now? And, you know, a great way of doing that is, well, let's, let's go through the core in the night before. Let's see how many portions we've got of X, Y, Z, what we need to order. And just, you know, let's just make it an organic process where um, it, it's just the stuff that I want to cook, you know, and you look at the ingredients and it just makes you happy. 
you mentioned that it was pretty hard work sort of operating like that, but Sagra was, you know, in that swell of a few restaurants that kind of bridged the gap between sort of casual dining and, and um, got these sort of um, acknowledgement from all the hat system and all the different sort of awards as well and changed our perceptions of what it meant to eat out at that level. Um, what was it like for you that little period of time where that was sort of considered, you know, in, in that realm? Year one, yeah, we got a hat and we won the gourmet, tra- uh, sorry, the Time Out Award for Best New Casual Restaurant. And that that, that, that was the pinch me moment, I think, the Time Out Awards. I was like, you got to be kidding. Like, I'm looking around, like, like Parsi was there and Jeremy Strode and all these guys. I'm like, I don't know if I'm meant to be here. Um, but a funny story, actually, I remember, so Pat and, Pat and Miffy came in just after we opened. Miffy was doing timeout and Pat was um, the reviewer at Gourmet Traveller. And um, they came in, he came in, sorry, uh, the day before I was away for a weekend for a friend's wedding. We'd been open like four weeks. And then we went away to the wedding and then on that night they came back in again when I wasn't there, <laughs> the two of them. <laughs> Got a phone call from Glenn saying, yeah, Pat and Miffy are sitting on table eight. I was like, awesome, great, okay. Um, But that review for Gourmet Traveller came out uh, on my birthday, uh, three months after we opened on the 29th of December. I remember I was was down with my my wife, Steph, who's French, and her father in Jaroa on like a quick break. And I'd go to the news agent every day and be like, when's the Gourmet Traveller coming? And then I, I, I read the review and I was just like, oh, my God. It was. I just. I couldn't believe it. It was. It was such an amazing review. Um, and credit to all the guys that worked at the restaurant. But I rang the restaurant phone, thinking, "Oh well, I better check that the phone's working." And it was giving an engage signal um, because there'd been a power outage. So I had to drive from Jaroa back to Sydney just to flick the phone over, and then uh, and drive back down again. And yeah, from yeah from that week, I think the the second week of January, the first day we were reopened, Terry Durack walked in from Good Food, and then it was just. You came in a bit later on and then, oh, God, it was just uh, that first year was uh, crazy. Um, beautiful and we had such a good team around it. Uh, I had such a good team around me, um, guys that I've worked with in the past at Sean's and overseas and um, Steph, my wife, and Alessandra from Lucio's. It was just, uh, it was like a little family and I, don't th- I think without that sort of little family, um, it would have been very, very challenging. You know, we had 38 chairs and I think we, you know, we were doing 100 plus um, on Saturday nights. Yeah, it was pretty full on. You mentioned um, the pigs that you were getting from Melanda Park. Is there any sort of pork dishes over the years of Sagra that you can sort of tell us about that spoke of what you were doing there? Well, I mean, I I sort of wait until the pig comes in (laughs) and, you know, sort of let him, let her talk to me in a way. Um, so the, the, the proudest I am about Saga is that I could look at the menu and there might be like four items on the menu that are from the one animal. Um, that was so cool. You know, we'd, we'd, um, we'd sort of, you know, maybe do like a little fried pig's head with the trotters and all that kind of stuff, uh, you know, as a snack. And if we had any pork that we didn't sell the night before, we'd slice it thin on the slicer and do like a pork tomato. And then with the trim, we'd make sausage fast and do like a papadilly with pork sausage ragu and, you know, maybe a slow roast shoulder with, you know, baked bolotti beans and salsa verde. And if we had any excess fat, we'd render that down and make pastry with it and stick it in dessert. So, but like looking at a menu and being like, okay, my four meat proteins are from not just the same type of animal, but 
the actual one animal. Um, that was, yeah. So, that, you know, there's dishes, but it had changed depending on the pig, you know. There's been a lot of water under the bridge since your days with Sagra. Um, how are you cooking these days? Is it is it different to then? <laughs> it's funny you should say that. I like working at Maryvale. Obviously, I um, uh, I, I I had you know pretty unlimited budget and was encouraged to make things you know pretty and saleable. And not saying the food wasn't any good. I thought the food was delicious, but probably wasn't a hundred percent of me. Um, and I've been sort of racking my brain the last four months sitting in this empty restaurant waiting for counsel to pull a finger out um, and, and, and wondering what I'm going to do, you know, like am I going to do what I did at William Street, you know, or am I going to do what I did at Trillo? And, you know, Trillo in London has been open for 13 years. Sagra turns 10 next year and I've been out of there for five years and I just think, you know, brown's beautiful. It's got to be flavour first. It's, I've got to go back to Cucina Povera and just do – do what I know, like like veggies. I got some veggies delivered the other day because obviously they're really expensive at the moment. So I got cauliflower leaves and you know, all the offcuts of veggies, not just of animals, to sort of start playing with in terms of. It, and there's so many things that you can you can play around with that taste amazing, like they do in Italy, like the bitter greens, and obviously they go really well with pork too because it sort of cuts through the the richness of the meat. But um, no, I'm going back to basics. So, and it may be repetitive. It may be, oh, well, you were doing that 10 years ago at Saga. But you know what? The restaurant's still open. So, it's, 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 it's got to stand for something, right? And, and it, it's the sort of food that makes me happy to cook. It's got to be homely and, 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 you know, it may not look the prettiest, but, you know, God, it tastes pretty good. You've had success as a chef and a restaurateur. How different is it when you step into the role of owning the business as well as sort of in charge of the, you know, the kitchen and, and uh, the food coming out of it? I'll tell you in a month. <laughs> it's been a while. Um, but, I mean, look, I think what I didn't do at Saga, which is why I probably burnt out, was that I, 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 I uh, tried to control a little bit too much. Um, and when you've got guys, you know, like Michael from Sagra is, 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 is going to give me a hand, you know, and he worked with me eight years ago and, you know, Pele at, 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 um, who helped me open Sagra and was my apprentice in London and Glenn taught me colds at, at Sean's back in the day and he was my sous chef. I, you got to hand over the reins, you know, it, it may not be a hundred percent your food. It might be 95% because everyone's got their, their own palate, but, you, you've got to give everyone a bit of a chance. Um, so yeah, so I've got some. I've got. I've got a good team, believe it or not, in in the current climate, um, that are just about to come on board. And I think it's just you know, well, you know, you know wine. So even though, even though that might not be my ideal wine, then if if you're passionate about it, you can go out in there and and sell it, and other people like it, then then great. And same deal with the food. That you know, I might do things slightly different, but yeah, I mean, in terms of a day. I mean, you got kids. It's, it's it's a little bit different these days than it used to be. Um, can't just sort of sleep in anymore if, you, if you're a bit tired. Um, it'll just be making sure that I have that balance, and then I don't um, like Saga. Like I've said before, is was down there at seven a.m. Call the fish guy, and then write the menu, and then write the prep list for the chefs that were coming in. Change any of the veg orders that that uh, where, where, if I'd forgotten something. Um, prep all day go home, have a shower, put on a shirt, come back, do front of house, you know, and then, 
every morning get in there as well, you know, mop the restaurant, sweep the restaurant, um, set the dining room, you know, or, or, or I guess all in the idea of, okay, well, let's, you know, let's try and save as much as we can on wage costs. But I think, you know, that comes at a tremendous personal cost, which is that I, I, I sold my first restaurant three and a half years after opening it. Um, I don't really want to do that here. I want to put faith in the staff that I have and, I, I you know, I want to see my wife and kid sitting, you know, sitting on table one in, in front of the kitchen because they're happy to be there and we can spend time together and I can take a night off. So, yeah, we'll see. You mentioned, um, you know, when you're getting pigs in at Sagra that you also made small goods. Is that something that will feature here? And, and um, you know, what makes a great small good? Look, we'll do some. Okay, there's some that, I, you know, I'm confident to do um, that, I think I can do just as good a job as other people. But, you know, that might be like guanciale or a pancetta or, you know, a, even a brizola to a degree. Um, but, you know, for the fermented salamis and stuff, I just – there's just guys out there that do it heaps better than me. <laughs> so, some, you know, the Europeans do that really well. So, you know, you've got – you got a horse butcher or a pig butcher or what you know what I mean? Like so there comes a point where you sort of like you, like if we start making bread here and I don't think it's up to scratch, I'm gonna be like, Well, do you know what? There's a guy down the road that makes amazing bread. So why don't we support a local business and just focus on what we know how to do really well, which is, you know, pasta and you know, the like. But yes, a small goods we'll we'll keep it pretty limited. Um, but I guess you know, in saying that, I've said guanciale, pancetta, we'll make our own sausage, um, you know, uh, but it'll probably be more around hot dishes than um, than sort of, you know, ageing stuff. Quality producers is sort of key to sort of what you do. Do you have any stories of connections with pig farmers over the years? Um, Matt, and, Matt and Sue at Melanda Park um, are amazing. They're like family. Um, I, I reached out to them when I was coming back from London before opening Sagra because I was just trying to – like at that stage, there wasn't a heap of small-scale farmers, be it veg or pork or whatever. You had to go through a wholesaler and I was like, no, 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 I want to get to know the grower. So – and they made everything so transparent, you know, to the point that I think the day after I got home, I went out there and had a look at the farm and picked up a suckling pig for my mate's birthday, for my mate's 30th um, and drove it home in the boot of my 85 Corolla. <laughs> um, but – I just knew straight away when I was there, I was like, these are the people I want to deal with, like not just in terms of how they raise the animals, but, you know, they deliver them themselves. And I remember at Sagra, like we'd have to go and help Sue unload the, you know, the sows that were a bit too big. And, you know, you imagine you're walking down Stanley Street and you see a team of four chefs running out to a truck and coming back with pigs hanging over their shoulders. You know, that's that's the sort of restaurant I want to probably want to go and eat at, right? Um yeah, so they've always been amazing, um, and we were using them through Maryvale as well. And uh, yeah, they'll be they'll be one of the first phone calls that I that I make in the next few weeks. Well, um, finally, after a couple of years um, of hard work, you're going to be opening the doors um, of the restaurant. How are you going to feel when you finally swing the doors open on you know your dream restaurant? Well, I said last time, I think we're going to go down. Um, but but, uh, but I guess doing the functions in the beginning, maybe just until we get that final bit of paper is, is a nice little way just to work out all the little niggly things that um, we haven't thought, I haven't thought of and I'm sure there'll be plenty. But oh, I don't, it's been such a journey, this thing. Um, 
and I'm, I'm a, you know, my wife says I'm a bit of a pussy, um, so I'm probably, I'm probably going to have a little cry in the corner at some point, I'm sure. <laughs> she says it in a nice way, but yeah, I'm definitely the emotional one in the relationship. But you know, if if we can take that emotion and, you know, stick it on the plate and stick it in the glass. Um, uh, yeah, it's going to be, it's, it's exciting. I, I'm just so sick of people saying, when are you going to open? <laughs> I swear, um, that's why I'm upstairs now because if I sit downstairs in the dining room working on the computer or something, people are always opening the door saying, when are you going to open? So I'm like, uh, I'm sort of hiding up here in the, in the back case. Um, but no, it's so exciting um, and, and yeah, a little bit daunting, but yeah, at least, you know, with the food, it may not be extremely, you know, evolutionary what I'm doing, but it's a, I guess it's a proven formula and, um, and it'll make me happy for, for a long time and hopefully a lot of other people too. Well, as ever, Nigel, it's amazing to catch up with you again. I've loved having you on The Crackling today to hear your story. Um, good luck with the opening and I uh, look forward to catching up again soon. Amazing, mate. Thanks a lot. This is The Crackling, a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstar. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.